We are in the book of Isaiah for three weeks, this being the third week, at least for now. We have been looking at the Old Testament prophets. We're doing so for a reason. The prophets have a great deal to teach you. They are a major section of the Bible. But aside from a few Aside from a few cherry-picked verses, most people don't know who the prophets are. Even avid Bible readers, somebody in the parking lot after the 8 a.m. service, uh, told me by way of saying that she was challenged but appreciating it, that she really avoided the Old Testament in general and the prophets in particular. And they're so relevant. Never lose sight of the fact that things that happened long ago have astounding relevance in your life right now, especially the things that are described in the Bible, because as I'm going to show you, God had you in mind even all those years ago. We're in the book of Isaiah, and today I'm going to show you the best and the richest part of the book of Isaiah, which is, I think almost everyone would agree, the best of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah is quoted extensively by Jesus. The book of Isaiah is second to the Psalms alone in being quoted in the New Testament. In other words, as the people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life took stock of him and understood who he was and what he was doing, their minds were drawn back to things they had heard growing up in the synagogue. Things their rabbis and fathers had read to them in the sacred assembly of the synagogue, teaching that they now understood had missed the mark because Isaiah was read, but he was not understood. The gospel writers who gave their lives to him, as I'm going to show you in a moment in the gospel of Matthew, they began to see what Isaiah promised and painted through song so many years ago. Here's two simple words to keep the book of Isaiah in view. You can think of two words while you're reading it. It doesn't encapsulate the entire book, but if you can remember these two words about Isaiah, you can always remember what it's about. The first word is sovereign, and the second word is servant. And those two words are related and connected. One of the big themes running through the book of Isaiah, as I'm about to show you, is that God is in charge of the entire world, that he sits high above it, that he is holy, he is the creator, he engages with his creation, but he is not part of it. He is in a class all of his own. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 6. And here you're going to see Isaiah's commission to be a prophet of God, Isaiah, who had a long ministry in the southern kingdom of Judah. I know there's a lot of names to keep up with, so let me explain to you quickly. David was the greatest of Israel's kings. He had a son, Solomon, who was the wisest man to live up to that point. But in his old age, he became entangled and enamored with money and women and drifted away from his God. His son, immediately following Solomon, was even worse than his father, was at his worst point. He was not gifted with the wisdom of his son, and through his harshness and stupidity, he broke the nation of Israel into two. A civil war started, and from that point forward, never to be reunited, Judah and Israel were separate nations of one same group of people. Isaiah lived in the southern, smaller tribe of, Isaiah, of, of Judah, and they kept the capital city, Jerusalem. Isaiah had a long ministry and served under several different kings, but in Isaiah chapter 6, in a time of great 
confusion and upheaval and political fear and military concern because their enemies were massing on their borders, Isaiah writes this. I'm in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. And that name is unf- that word is unfamiliar because it simply wasn't translated. That's actually Hebrew, and it simply means the burning ones. It's as if the translators weren't, in, though they knew what it meant, they didn't want to spell it out. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Sovereign and servant. God is sovereign. We live, I think most of us would agree, in the most tumultuous time of our lifespan. I have regular visits with a lady in our church who's a shut-in, who's almost 100 years old, and It's kind of funny and kind of sad and kind of concerning, but almost every time we visit, she said, isn't this a crazy time we're living through? And I think, you know, if you're 98 years old and you graduated from high school in 1941 and you think these are crazy times, I need to pay better attention. These really must be very crazy and difficult times. You won't navigate life well. You won't navigate life faithfully unless you keep a view of God as sovereign. If you keep looking at the size of your problems and the frailty of your own life, you'll be ruined, anxious, depressed, fearful, angry. Your whole life will drift away from God's purpose and from God's character. Please keep in mind that God is sovereign. And you notice that this is a little picture of the gospel. God is holy and unapproachable. He has fiery creatures that... that, fly around him who say to one another who God is. He's holy, holy, holy. He's in charge of everything. He's the Lord of the hosts. In other words, he's in charge of the armies. He's in charge of the whole world, and he is holy. And when Isaiah saw him, he felt like he was coming apart. That's what the language means. Woe is me. It's a little poetic. But Isaiah basically said, poor me, and felt like he was coming undone. But then you'll notice Isaiah's forgiveness is provided for. He didn't earn it. God sent one of these strange creatures to him and made this announcement. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Already in the book of Isaiah, we're being told about the ministry of Jesus that it will be done for us, that we can't earn it, that we can't stand before a God that is this holy and this powerful, but God will account for our weakness and for our sin. 
God is sovereign. And God calls servants. All the way through the book of Isaiah, you see the sovereign God ruling over His creation, calling different kinds of people into His service. Israel itself is called in Isaiah God's servant. And the idea, if you read the New Testament and you read in 1 Peter that Peter grabs onto a verse and explains that he understands it now in light of Jesus. The purpose of Israel in the world was that they would be a light to the nations, that they would be a nation of prophets and priests that would represent people to God, bring people to God, that the pagan wicked nations surrounding Israel, their entire existence would be changed by them and come to worship the true God because Israel was so different. So holy, so merciful, so compassionate, so loving, so faithful, so blessed. You've read the Old Testament enough, even if you haven't read it much at all. How did that work out? How did Israel do in their mission? They were not a good servant to God. They continually went after other gods. They became idolaters of the same false gods in the nation surrounding them. They were the worst kind of missionary. For the missionary is sent to a group of people and converts to their faith rather than bringing people to his own. Even a pagan king named Cyrus is called God's servant. You want to see something amazing? Look with me in Isaiah 44, please, verse 28. Isaiah 44 and verse 28. One of the ways that God displays His sovereignty in the book of Isaiah is predicting the future in Isaiah's time. And in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, God speaks of a foreign king who will be His servant. Isaiah 44, verse 28, God is speaking and it says, who says of Cyrus, that's the name of the king, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Okay, well that's kind of cool. I don't get it. Cyrus was used by God to send the deported people from Judah back to their land to rebuild the city, and rebuild the temple. That's all predicted right there in Isaiah 44, verse 28. Do you see it? What's the significance? That was written 150 years before Cyrus was alive. Yeah. This is not the tabloid prophecy that says that a great one will arise in the West and through the power of his music will draw people into the folds of the eagle. People go, well, that's Elvis Presley. A lot of so-called prophets are so vague, so symbolic, so esoteric that people literally for millennia have read back their own time into things written long ago and none of them are right. Because every generation finds new meaning in these really strange cryptic sayings and saying, well, there we are, there they are. Everybody in the world says that's our country. None of them are right because the guy didn't know what he was talking about. He was high. He was delusional. He was unmoored from reality. Here in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is predicting things that haven't even happened. 
Judah hasn't even been deported yet. Jerusalem is still standing. It's not yet burned. He's giving it as a fact that it's going to happen and predicting it's rebuilding 150 years before Cyrus is even alive. You have any idea who the president of the United States will be 20 years from now? Me neither. We have absolutely no way of knowing what's going to happen next Tuesday. Isaiah is naming a pagan king that would come to live a century and a half after his writing. Of course, skeptics have said, well, somebody else makes that in there, but their best objections fall flat. Isaiah wrote this and put it in writing so that his, not for his people, because they died first, so that we, all these years later, 2,700 years after the ministry of Isaiah, we can open our Bibles and see that God really is sovereign, he predicts the future, he deals with idols, he deals with sin, and the next theme in Isaiah, that God uses servants of all kinds, including pagan kings who don't even know him, to do his will. Israel is his failed servant. Cyrus, for a time, is a pagan servant of God. But then in Isaiah, and this is the bulk of the message, let me tell you what's coming. I'm mostly going to read it to you. I'm only going to explain what is necessary for you to see it. But if you've been in church for even a little while and are familiar with the person and the work of Jesus, what I think and what I hope and pray will happen is that the meaning from these passages written 700 years before the birth of Christ will jump right off the page. And you'll see that with the same confidence that Isaiah predicted Cyrus, Isaiah sang about Jesus. These are called by Bible students the servant songs. Look at the first. Listen to the first one with me. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. God speaking. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Sounds like what the Father said of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved Son. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. By the way, does that sound good to you? He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 3 requires explanation because it's poetic. What is a bruised reed? Why won't the servant break it? What does Isaiah mean by a faintly burning wick that the servant will not quench? It means that the servant that God will send forth unlike many people who pursue justice, will do his work quietly and personally. And he will deal with the most broken, lost, and hopeless of people, and he will not finish them off. Rather, he will save them and restore them. He will build them back up. Because I'm in Christian ministry, and because Christian ministry cares deeply about justice, because God is just... I've occasionally partnered with people to work against terrible things in our society that require true biblical justice. 
And I don't know what your experience has been, but my, pe my experience has been that most of the people I've partnered with who are dedicated to justice with a few bright, shining Christian examples, most of them spend their time angry. And because they deal with injustice every day, they grow bitter. And because they see the need so clearly, they get loud. Jesus is going to bring justice to the nations. He will do so faithfully, but He's going to do so quietly and lovingly. He's not going to be looking past anyone thinking that they can't help the cause. He's going to look at the most unimportant, broken people that He encounters, and He will not finish them off. Rather, He will bring them back. He'll restore them. He'll save them. You ever been in the party? Happens to me almost every time I go to a large gathering, I spend my time talking to at least one person who spends their time looking over my shoulder, looking for somebody cooler to talk to. <laughs> Does that ever happen to you? Jesus isn't like that. If you feel far from Him, broken down, worn out, if you're aware of your shame and your guilt, His heart is for you because a bruised reed He will not break, a faintly burning wick He will not quench, He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, that's a picture of the nations, wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Here comes sovereignty again. I am the Lord. He says to his servant, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Here's the ministry of Jesus as explained by Jesus. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Hold your place in Isaiah, but look with me quickly to Matthew, please, chapter 12. I want to show you this in action. Matthew chapter 12, I'm in verse 9. This is fully the mature ministry of Jesus. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a shoe as a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Don't miss this. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them. What's it say? All, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So when Isaiah begins singing, 
on behalf of the sovereign God about the chosen servant of God, the first thing he tells us is, by God's Spirit, that servant will bring justice. Look with me now to Isaiah 49. Because Isaiah is going to sing again. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Now the servant speaks for himself. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That was God's original intention for Israel. They failed. So he called and sent forth a better servant. A servant who always told the truth. A servant as tender as he could be with the broken, could also be fierce with the proud. That's the sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus was willing to call people whitewashed tombs and tell them that they were, looked good on the outside, but inside they were filled with dead man's bones if they were leading other people astray and missing God themselves. Jesus in his humanity suffered and for a time on the cross seemingly failed. That's all here, verse 4. But I said... Servant, still speaking. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Well, that's a surprising thing to hear on the lips of God's servant. But maybe you remember Jesus crying out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening there? To the watching world, including... To those who were eyewitnesses of that event, that looks like the failure of the servant of God. Forsaken and abandoned at the end. He wasn't. He was quoting scripture. He was quoting Psalm 22. He was identifying even in his last moments of life with everything that had ever been promised of him. He spoke again and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He also announced that his work was finished. In other words, this suffering servant sent forth to the nations to tell them the truth will seem for a time because of his suffering to have failed, but it says in verse 4, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob, it's another word for Israel, to bring Jacob or Israel back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, the servant says, God says about me, God says to me, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One to one deeply despised. That's Jesus. Abhorred by the nation. That was Jesus. The servant of rulers who stood in front of kings, wicked people in both the Jewish government and the Roman Empire who despised Him. He suffered and died in front of them. God says to him, kings shall see and arise. 
princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The second song announces that the servant of God will bring salvation to Israel and all the nations, and he will do so not by triumphing in the beginning, but by suffering and dying. Look in the very next chapter in Isaiah 50. All of this is hard to believe for the people who are hearing Isaiah. They feel far from God. They feel as if God has abandoned them. They read these promises, but they can't believe them. Maybe you've had the experience. You ever had the experience, maybe because you have a besetting sin, a habitual sin, that just drags you time, drags you down time and time again, and you want to talk to God about it in prayer, and you want to read your Bible to hear from Him, but you're embarrassed to open the Bible, and you feel like if you pray this time, this is the time He's going to say, I've heard this already, I'm tired of you, go figure it out, go change. Anybody ever had that experience? It's a very common experience. That's how Judah feels because of their sin. So Isaiah 50 opens up with a very heavy word picture. The people say to God, we feel like you're a husband who's divorced us. We feel like we've owed you so much and we've owed you so much for so long that you've sold us into slavery to get your money back. Here's God's answer. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. In other words, that's a heavy image, I haven't abandoned you. You're far from me because you've sinned against me. Your sins have carried you away from me. I'm right here. I haven't changed my heart and my plans toward you. Pastor's wife I knew who was... You had to be careful talking to her because she had great one-liners. And, you know, if you were a little bit out of line, she might just bless you with one and get you back on the road. We all need friends like that. She had a little saying, and I think if I remember correctly, it's been a long time, I was trying to remember, I think she actually had this kind of a sticker on her fridge. It said, if memory serves... If you feel far from God, guess who moved? Ouch. Kind of personal. That's what Isaiah is saying here. Verse 2. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? In other words, you think I can't save you? As far away as you are, as wicked as you've become, you think I can't reach out and bring you back? Now God's going to talk about His sovereign strength again. Listen, behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I'm in charge of everything. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me. Now the servant speaks again. The servant who's going to do all this talks again. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. If you are worn down, if you are worn out, Jesus knows how to sustain you by speaking to you. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. 
The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Jesus here is describing his future ministry when he was here on earth, and I want you to pay close attention to the verses that follow because they are a graphic description of how Jesus was tortured before he was killed on a cross. All of this recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. In other words, Jesus died this way because he was determined to do it. He trusted in God all the way through and all the way down to death. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the servant says, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness, here's the invitation. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And this last verse, he's going to tell them that they have a choice. Behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. What's that word picture mean? God is announcing to them, I'm the one who can bring you back. I'm in charge of everything. My servant is determined. The servant himself says, I'm determined to go into suffering. And when people turn on me, I'm going to offer them my back for beating. I'm not going to resist them when they tear out my beard. I'm not going to resist them when they spit on me. All of those things happen during the crucifixion of Jesus. And God says, if you walk in darkness, trust God. But you have a choice. Some of you have been lighting your own fires. And you want to light your own fire and live by the little tiny lights that you produce? Go right ahead, but you'll lie down in torment. And in other words, it won't work. You'll suffer and die in darkness because you won't have the real light that I alone can give you. You've been lighting your own fires been casting your own light. Isaiah and the servant would warn you that there's no future in it. Here's the final song, the best song, the highest, the clearest of all the songs. Look in Isaiah 52, please, verse 13. The song itself actually begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up because he's God. And shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so, how, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, God is announcing He's going to do all this, but who believes Him? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who has seen God's strength to carry all this off? Here's a description of Jesus in detail. 
his childhood, his death among thieves, the gifted grave he was given by a rich man after he was taken off the cross. It's all here in poetic imagery, in prophecy, 700 years before he was born. Listen, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, if Jesus was quiet in a crowd, you would not have picked him out as an important man. It wasn't until he spoke and he acted that people took note of him. There was nothing particularly attractive, enticing to draw people in. On the contrary, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Why did all this happen? This is the center of the song, and the way it's written poetically, Isaiah wants you to see this is the heart of it. The next three verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What a picture. He's wounded, he's harmed, he's killed, we are healed, we live. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked. He died between two men, one of whom said he deserved it. And with the rich man in his death, he was buried in the gifted tomb of a wealthy man. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper at his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's astonishing. And the book of Hebrews, much later in the New Testament, explains that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he endured it because he was looking ahead to the joy that was set before him. And if you want to know what that joy is, it's you, it's us. Jews and Gentiles, people who weren't looking for God, people who had disobeyed God, people who had denied God and defied God, all brought back by the power of the suffering servant. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus intercedes for sinners, made saints, made into family, made into sons and daughters, even now. 
The 50th chapter tells you that the servant was going to be despised and abused but would continue to obey God in spite of his suffering. And Isaiah 52 and 53 tell you that the servant will take the place of the unrighteous so that we could be made righteous. It's not something we earn. It's not something we attain. It's something that he gifts us as his substitute. That's why the center and the height of that song is printed on your sheet. Now let me show you in Acts 13, if you have your handout, a New Testament preacher bring this all together. He's reading his Hebrew Bible and he's understanding the prophets. And in Acts 13, we read this. Indeed, beginning with Samuel... All the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you, he's speaking to Jews, you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, though your offspring, rather through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Who is the servant of God? What is he like? He is spirit-filled. That's who the servant is. He is the servant, and he and he alone is the servant who saves the nations. He is the servant who obeys God in spite of the worst kind of suffering. And best of all, he is the servant who becomes a substitute for sinners. This is Jesus presented to you 700 years before his birth. And here's the best part of it. Here's why it's so meaningful. It means that all of God's goodness is ours through Jesus, the servant sent to us. Everything that God is, everything God can do, all expressed, sent, and accomplished, not by religious people, not by people committed to self-improvement, not by people who figured it out, not by smart people who learned enough, not by hard-working people who did enough, all of it done by the servant as a gift to you. So if you're anxious, take rest in the sovereignty of God. Know that God in His sovereignty has chosen to use His great strength and sovereignty to send His servant for you. You are loved in this way. You never need to feel again that your sins have made a separation between you and the holy God. The servant covered the gap. The servant provided the atonement. The servant provided the forgiveness. And the servant has made you and me, Gentile like me, the unknown origin somewhere in Europe and on my mother's side from the Cherokee nation with a lot of my family in a little town called Tahlequah, Oklahoma. A little tribe, people of no particular importance, marked by poverty for generations going back centuries. All of that, all of you, all of us in the sight of a sovereign God for whom he would send the servant to bear our sins so that we could have his righteousness instead. People of no importance whose lives are as frail as the, servants, as the servant chose to make his own. This life won't be easy. But understand how deeply, faithfully, and completely you are loved because the servant was already sent and he is for you. Let's pray together. Christian, have you seen this picture of Jesus in the Old Testament before? 
If you haven't, could I just maybe suggest you thank God for it? That 2,700 years before your time, God had you in mind to do all this without you knowing, much less asking. That's how loved we are. That's why we don't have to be anxious. That's why we can endure suffering as real as it is. That's why we can work our way through fear as crippling as it can be because God is sovereign. The sovereign God sends His servant to make everything right, to bring you into His family. Thank Him, Christian. And if you've never trusted Jesus... Let me just recap. I've tried to show you in writing prophecies made about Christ 700 years before Jesus was born. Even of a pagan king known primarily because of his role in God's story that was sent to restore the nation, rebuild the temple so that Jesus could be born into it. So that Jesus could go to the temple and preach in its courtyards. Explained that all the scripture was actually about him. Amazing. Have you trusted him? Is he your savior? If not, could I invite you right now to call out to Jesus and ask him to save you? Confess your sins, confess your need of him. Thank him for suffering in your place for your sins so that you wouldn't have to. He'll give you the same promise he gave Isaiah, the same gift, the same blessing. Your guilt is covered. It's all been taken care of for you. If only you'll trust Jesus. If you'll stop living by your own light and trust your God instead, he'll save.